Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles open, if you would, to the book of Amos, little book in the Old Testament. If you haven't been with us the last number of weeks, you probably need to pull out the Bible and look in the table of contents and dig it up. You go to the middle of the Bible, hang a right, and go over a little ways, short little book, Amos. This past week, I took a couple of days to make a quick trip down to Oklahoma to check in and on and to visit with my mom who's in a nursing home there. A round trip, it's about 14, 15 hours of driving. And uh, that's that gets old, having done it now quite a while over the last uh, several years, uh, quite frequently. But But on the other hand, it comes with some benefits. One of those benefits is getting to do some things that I don't have time to do normally. One of my favorite things as I'm, is just turn everything off and, and I have a little bit of silence. <laughs> I don't know about you, but silence is rare in my world where it's just really just no interruptions, no, it's quiet. Time to think. And um, as I was traveling this week, among the things I was spending time thinking about was this message for this morning. And chief among my thoughts along those lines were, what in the world was I thinking when I scheduled this message for this Sunday morning? Uh, but it is, and here we are. We're in the book of Amos, and it's Mother's Day, okay? And the first of all, that was my first concern as I thought about this. It's Mother's Day, and Amos, uh, as any of the prophets here, don't particularly lend themselves to feel good puppies, candy, flowers, uh, Mother's Day type of messages. So, sorry about that, Mom. I don't know what I was thinking in this because we're trying to cover four chapters this morning. And you know me, we usually struggle to get a couple of verses in, and we're going to do four chapters this morning. But there is a method to my madness. But obviously what that means is that we're going to, there's not even time to read it all, much less to study in detail. So we're going to, I'm going to do my best to kind of do the uh, greatest hits of Amos chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6 this morning. Hopefully you'll be motivated to go back and read more on your own. In these four chapters of Amos, chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, Amos delivers five sermons. And we're going to condense it down to one. Uh, you can pick them out, by the way, when you go through and read, because each of the sermons, well, actually the first three sermons begin with these words. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken. And then the last two of the five sermons begin with these words, woe to you. So that'll help you pick them out as you're going through. Now, as we begin, I realize all of you haven't been around as we started this book. We're in a series looking at the prophets to Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel had divided into two nations. They had had a civil war and a split about 130 years before this. There are only three prophets who wrote to the northern kingdom. And we've looked at Jonah, and we're now in the middle of Amos, and we'll end this with a brief look at the prophet Hosea at the end of this month. But Amos is speaking to a nation, this nation of Israel. And if you were living at that time, 
If we were reading the newspaper, if we were watching the cable news channels or whatever, we would come up with the idea and we would be feeling like this is good times. For the first time in 130 years, People were proud to wave the flag and wave and wear the t-shirt that says, I'm an Israelite. Things were good. Since King Jeroboam II had taken the throne, they had the enemies on the ropes. The enemies were at bay. They were living in peace. They were respected by the surrounding nations. Their economy was booming. They were the, it was the greatest Days since King Solomon. And if King Jeroboam were here today, he could run on that platform and win in the United States. He could run on that record. Let's make this place great again. Have a booming economy, security, safety. Be respected in the world. Great times. And then Amos shows up. If you were here in the first two chapters, we saw that Amos shows up on the scene and he begins by giving pronouncements from God, words from God, speaking about the nations surrounding Israel. And God pronounced judgment on each of the nations around Israel. And you can almost hear the crowd on the pages. You can almost hear them cheering and going, yeah, right on, you go God. They're getting what they deserve, finally. And then he ended with, Now hear what the Lord says to you, Israel. And God pronounces judgment on the nation of Israel. And Amos went from hero to party pooper very quickly. You remember that he declared that God was going to judge Israel because there were were a number of huge, serious sins in Israel, problems and There were seven of them we noted. Heartless greed. Folks who were so greedy for a profit and just they would make money, were looking to make money at any cost. Whether it was taking, selling out the the poorest guy for a pair of shoes. We'll sell the poor for shoes. We'll we'll sell out the, the good guy to make a profit. We'll sell people, you know, they'd sell their mother to make a profit. Heartless greed. There was injustice for the poor. Justice was for sale for the highest bidder and there wasn't any recourse for the poor and the helpless. There was rampant immorality in Israel. There was warped worship where people said they worshipped God, but they didn't. They worshipped themselves and actually there was worship of other gods as well. They... The people were corrupting God's servants, folks that God had sent to serve Him and to help be a a witness and a testimony and a good influence on the nation. And people intentionally looked for ways they could corrupt the godly. And then they also tried to, they rejected God's Word and in so doing they tried to silence the prophets whenever God sent prophets to speak to them. So He said, judgment is coming to Israel. In these chapters before us this morning, these four chapters, there's more in-depth detail given about some of the sins and the crimes in Israel. We really won't spend a lot of time on that this morning. And he does throughout these four chapters, he, he answers one question 
And then specifically in each of these messages, as we'll look at, he answers another question. But one question would be, well, if God is going to judge Israel, then what's it going to look like? How bad is it going to be? If you lived in Israel and you heard that, you might wonder, what is this going to look like? Are we going to get a little slap on the hand, a belt to the bottom? Are we going to get a frowny face on our report card instead of a gold star? What does it mean when God says He's going to judge Israel? That's a good question. Chapter 3, we'll just kind of walk quickly through these chapters, just see a couple of examples. Chapter 3, verse 12, we'll see something of what this judgment is. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. You go, what in the world did he just say? Well, remember that Amos is not a professional prophet. He was a rancher and a farmer down in the southern land of Judah when God said, i got a job for you. You're going to go be preached for me up north. God took him out of the backwoods, out of the hill country, sent the hillbilly up to the cosmopolitan place of Israel with these messages. But he's using here a good illustration from the, from the shepherd line of work. See, if you were caring for sheep, Often shepherds typically didn't own the sheep. They were employed by the the owner of the sheep. And sometimes when you're out in the wild with with your sheep, there are many dangers, including wild animals. And if a wild animal, say a bear, came and grabbed a sheep from the herd and ran off with it, if you went back to the owner and said, well, we were out with the sheep, but we lost one of your sheep to a bear, He'd say, pay up. He'd say, you've got to pay me for the sheep because how do I know you didn't take him and sell him? And so what the law was is that if the bear runs off with the sheep, you've got to go and after the bear is done, you've got to get whatever pieces you can find. That's what he says. Rescue maybe an ear or a leg. And you take it back to the sheep owner and say, see, a bear took your sheep. And then it was the loss of the owner, not the shepherd. Well, he's using that illustration to say when this judgment is done, when you go to see what's left in Samaria, that's Israel, what you'll find is the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. In other words, you'll find stubble, ruins. The place is going to be demolished. Uh, He goes on and... and, uh, He goes down and you look in verse 14 and he says, On that day I'll punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off. Bethel was the place where they went to worship there in Israel. And what God is saying is that it was the custom in that day. So, folks, if you were a fugitive on the run from someone for some crime or something they thought you owed for or whatever, you could run into the place of worship and the the altar had these little protrusions off each corner that kind of like horns. And people would go and grab those and they could go, they could say, sanctuary, I'm, I'm safe, you can't touch me, I'm on base, you know, if we were kids playing tag. You know, I'm safe here as long as I'm here, you can't touch me. What God says is just in case you think you're going to escape from that, I want you to know I'm cutting the corners off the altar. There's there's no escape. How bad is it going to be? The place is going to be demolished. There's no escape. Into chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks 
Even the last of you with fish hooks. Literally what he's describing is what happened when ultimately Assyria came in and demolished this this nation in 722. And the few who were su- who survived, they took them away and they literally took big hooks and pulled, put them into people's flesh and drug them along to be captives into other places. They took them out as exiles. Pretty graphic and gory. How bad's it going to be? It's getting pretty bad. Chapter 5, verse 3, he goes on, For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which out went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. In other words, the casualty rate will be 90%. Nine out of ten people will die in Israel. Chapter 6, in verse 11, one more little thing to see. He says, For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. What he's saying is the great house, the mansion, will be torn down to fragments, the Little house, the, the shack, will be torn to bits. doesn't matter if you are Donald Trump or if you are the poorest beggar. It doesn't matter whether you, whoever you are, this, this devastation is going to cut across all socioeconomic lines. It will affect everyone and it will be complete. Total devastation. That's what it's going to be like. How bad will it be? Really bad. As I read through these messages of Amos, I think what he is doing is answering some objections that people might put up when they start hearing God is going to judge. And people are going to come back with, but wait a minute. (laughs) Wait just a minute. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Amos is answering some objections they have. Going back to chapter 3, Amos begins with these words, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. What Amos is anticipating is that one of the first things people will say when they hear this message that God is going to judge you is they're going to come back with, but but wait a minute, God can't judge us. We're God's people. I mean, think about it as Amos says here. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You're the people, you're the whole family that I brought out of Egypt. See, they're saying that we're God's people. We were chosen by God. We were adopted as His family. We were rescued, redeemed, brought out of Egypt. See, God God chose us. He made a covenant with Abraham, made us His people, His chosen people. God rescued us. He redeemed us. He set us in this land. He gave us this land. He promised this land to our forefather Abraham. God can't judge us. But God says, if you look carefully, the end of verse 2, Therefore, 
I will punish you. It's for this very reason, God says, that I will punish you for your sins. This won't exempt you from judgment. This guarantees it. See, we we understand that with our kids. When we look out the window and we see the neighbor's kids rolling around in the mud puddle, we just go, you know, too bad. But you see your kids rolling around in the mud puddle? Window flies up, the door flies open, you know, whatever. You know, Johnny, get back in here! They're in trouble. We discipline our kids, but we don't discipline the neighborhood kids. Right? And God is saying that precisely because you are my people, I am going to judge you. God will not tolerate rebellious children. The reality is, it's not just Israel in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, and we realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are people who have been chosen by God. We are people who have been adopted into His family. We are people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. All of those same things that Israel is saying and say, well, therefore we can't be judged. We can say of the church. And God would also say to us then, then don't think, church, that you are exempt from my judgment. See, some believers, some Christians think, you know, hey, I, I, because I'm adopted by God, I'm in His family, you know, I can live however I want and it doesn't matter. I've got a fire insurance policy, I'm good. You know, I'm not going to hell, I've, I'm covered. But God says something different. Let's know this, if you're thinking that way, please know God will not let you go on sinning indefinitely. Or for very long. Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines those He loves. And He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. God doesn't tolerate rebellious children. And if He is tolerating you who think you're rebellious and disobedient and God's letting me get away with it, you're in a worse situation. Deceiving yourself thinking you're a child of God where really you're not His children. You're the neighborhood kid. Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's not saying that we get to heaven by doing good works, and it's, it's only when we do good works that we get to heaven. What he's saying is, is that the person of real faith, the Bible's clear, we get to heaven by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ, by receiving a gift that God has given through Christ, where He is paid for our sins. It's by faith. But what He's saying is that real faith shows up in real life. Real faith affects real life. That the person of real faith will desire to do the will of the Father in heaven. To claim to have faith, but to run from God and care less what God thinks. The Bible gives no comfort that such a one is a true child of God. Read the book of Hebrews. Read the book of First John. Read the book of James. A second objection they may have would be this. This is so sudden. Amos, you just pop on the scene here and here you say, God is going to judge us. I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
everything's great. Look around. I mean, we've, we're on a building boom. We've got people building strongholds, towers. They're multi-story buildings are going up everywhere in Israel at this time. Bank accounts are growing fat. The, the stock market is bursting, you know, setting new records every day. So this is all so unexpected. And God says, chapter 4, verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, I also withheld rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest and I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. And down to the end of verse 8, he says, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 9, God says, I struck you with blight and mildew in your many gardens and your vineyards. And on down he says, yet you did not return to me. Five times God says, you guys, didn't you notice that there was a problem, a catastrophe here? A problem there? A, a, a problem over here? Didn't you notice those? And yet each time, he says, by the way, not only did you notice those, understand this for sure, I sent that. And what he's saying is that I sent that for a reason. And what he's saying is that the Scripture makes very clear all the way through, in this world there are no accidents. There are incidents. And that God is busy working through our circumstances, whether our circumstances are blessings, whether our circumstances are good times, or whether our circumstances are problems or calamities or catastrophes, God is at work in all of those. And in all of those, He is desiring to get our attention. Hopefully through the good things, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, that God, don't you know that the blessing of the Lord is designed to lead us to repentance? But if God doesn't get our attention through blessing, He seeks to get our attention through calamity. And God says here, I sent five different calamities and yet you did not return to me. I sent warnings, but you refused to listen. I read just yesterday that Mount St. Helens over the last few weeks has been, uh, there's been over 130 earthquakes in the last few weeks underneath Mount St. Helens. What the experts say is that what's going on is that this volcano there is, is in the process of recharging. And they don't expect it anytime soon, not in the next week or months, but sometime, probably in the next few years, this volcano will erupt again. Everything that's going on right now is the warning signs that this volcano is getting pumped up again to blow its top. And what God is saying is that I am using the incidences, the, the situations in your life, Israel, to let you know that there is an eruption of judgment coming. And if you had returned to me, you would stave it off. You would end it, but you didn't return to me. And so the judgment is coming. Therefore, verse 12, he says, Therefore, thus I will do to you. I'll send this judgment. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. That's an important word. Every single one of us will stand before God one day to give account. 
And what he's telling Israel is your day is coming sooner rather than later. Get ready to meet your God. The lesson to us is that we should not ignore God's call to us through the circumstances of our life. That through every circumstance, blessing or problem, we should examine ourselves to see, am I really following God from my heart? Third objection they might have is that, hey, wait a minute, God can't judge us. We're faithful churchgoers. We are really, really religiously faithful people. How can God judge us? They were thinking, you know, actually it's going to be great one day when God comes, when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be a good thing. Look down in chapter 5. We're actually in the second half of chapter 5 down in verse 18. This is the fourth sermon. I skipped number three. We're going to come back. This is the fourth sermon that he delivers. And he starts it with, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Woe to you folks in Israel who are saying, it's going to be great when the day of the Lord comes. When God, when, when God sends the Messiah and sets up the kingdom, they're thinking they're, this is going to be awesome because we're finally going to get the recognition. It's good now, but it's going to be better then. And God says, not so fast. Be careful what you desire. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It is as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. This is like your worst case scenario nightmare, your big horror picture where he's saying, there you are, you're running, you see a lion, and you run from the lion, and you're running as fast as you can, you turn the corner, and you, you lost the lion, and you look up, and there's a bear, and you run, and you turn, you run the other way, and you're running around, and you finally find an open door, you run and you slam the door, put your hand on the wall, and a snake bites you. He says, that's what it is. For you who say, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. If your heart isn't right with Him. And these folks' heart wasn't right with God. And God said, you're in trouble. But why did they think they were... Why were they so thinking, hey, we're good with God, but they weren't? Well, just go on down. Verse 21. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the medley of your harps. I will not listen. What God is saying, you guys come to church every week. Matter of fact, you go back a bit and you find out they're going every three days. And He's saying... You're coming all this time and you think you're, you know, you're getting good because you're sitting in the pews and you're, you're writing out the checks and putting them in the plate and you're, you're doing all this stuff and you got a great band and they're playing great songs and you're singing along and everybody, and you think I'm happy and I hate it. Turn off the noise of the music and, you know, quit the stuff. Yeah. What's going on? Does God not like worship? I thought God liked worship. The reality is, yes, God loves worship. But the problem is that they were doing all the ritual of religion, but without a heart for God. And they were doing all the ritual of the religion in church, but then they went out and lived like they could care less about God. 
It would be the same thing as today. Dad, husband, kid. Say it's Mother's Day. And you run to the store, you run to the florist, and you get the biggest, nicest, two dozen bunch of roses you can find in the prettiest vase. And you, you get that all packaged up and ready to take home. And then you stop by the, the, the confectionaire and you buy freshly made chocolate-covered strawberries. Two dozen of them. You get those packaged up and they're beautiful and you get those together. And then, and then you stop and get a couple other gifts and you take them home and you give them to your wife or to your mom and you say, Happy Mother's Day! And she's going to be absolutely delighted unless she knows that you don't respect her, you don't care about her feelings, her desires, you treat her like dirt all the rest of the time. You don't really love her. Mom's, all the flowers and candy in the world won't make up for that, will it? See, that's what it is when we go through the motions with God with no heart. And that's what Israel was doing and God says, it makes me sick. I hate it. That's why the prophet Samuel told King Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. Obeying God is better than worship. Jesus said the same thing. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It doesn't matter how many great songs we sing, how much we give, if we don't love Him and if we don't do what He says. It's folly to live life on our terms and, and in rebellion against God, but then show up to pay dues at church. Somehow think that God's good with that. What, is, what does God delight in? You go on down a little bit more in, verse, in chapter 5, down to verse 24, and you read these words. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That was one of the favorite verses that Martin Luther King used to quote and others in the civil rights movement. And they had it right in that God's people should be people like that. God's people should be about justice for all people and God's people should be about doing righteousness, doing what is right all the time, doing good works, good deeds. That's what God's people should be, but Israel wasn't. And sadly, much of the church today is not either. Uh, fourthly, an objection that these folks might have had was we find in, in chapter 6 where he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. What he's saying is that the people in Israel thought that they're number one. God can't judge us because we're awesome. I mean, look at us. We're awesome. We are number one. We are the best nation on the planet. That's what he says. The first of the nations. We're wonderful people. We're too big to fail. <laughs> well, whatever. They were strong militarily, so they were physically secure. They were strong 
economically, so they were financially secure. But please note that God does not evaluate, God does not measure the greatness of a nation by their economy, nor does He measure the greatness of a nation by their military power. God measures the greatness of a nation by their righteousness. Those are important things for us to remember in a year where everybody's talking about making America great. It's about being great before God by His measure is what really matters. So he goes on. Same sermon, chapter 6, we're in verse 4. Continuing, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, they invent for themselves instrument of music. And they drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. To describe describe this in 21st century terms, these folks sit back stretch back in their lazy boy recliners. They lay out on their comfortable couches. They lie down on beds that are decorated with ivory. They're, in other words, the fine, expensive beds. They eat delicacies. Lamb. They're drinking from Bubba cups of wine, you know. And they never they use nothing but the finest of oils, of cosmetics, of lotions. In other words, life is good. If you go back to chapter three and verse fifteen, they have great grand homes. You don't have to turn there, but these great homes, and again it describes them as covered with ivory. In other words, their homes are beautiful and huge mansions and they're decorated fancy. And if that's not enough It says there as well, they have summer homes. They have winter homes. They've got vacation places to go to. And when I read all that, I think, man, all of this sounds eerily familiar to where we live. They are rich, they're comfortable, they're proud, and they're assured that life is always going to be like this. Reality check. Twenty years from this, this northern kingdom of Israel is a smoldering pile of rubble in the ground. Nothing left. I want to just note, he ends that little section, verse 6. Look at the last half and we're almost done. It says this, but they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. What that does is take you way back in your Old Testament to a story that you may remember from Genesis chapter 37. You may remember that Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, he had 12 sons. Among those sons was one named Joseph. If you remember, Jacob loved Joseph and he gave him that coat of many colors, you know, and stuff. And and the brothers hated him and he went out to check on the brothers who were tending the sheep out good ways away from home. And he got there and the brothers saw him coming and they said, let's kill him. Only one brother objected. That was Reuben. He said, no, that's not a good idea. Why don't we just throw him in this pit? You know? So they get there. He gets there and they grab him. They beat him. They rip off his, his clothes. They throw him into this pit in this cistern, probably 10 to 20 feet deep. He falls on the hard bottom. That could have killed him. 
They go off knowing full well they're going to leave him for dead, except Reuben who thinks, I'm going to go back and save him. And what do they do? They sit down and have lunch. That's what he's saying here. He's saying you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, you're sitting there in your fine houses on your lazy boys, drinking your, your wine and eating fine foods, and you're just all comfortable and proud and happy and you're totally unconcerned about those who are hurting and helpless and are needy and are, who are oppressed and totally unconcerned about the ruin of, that's impending on the nation of Israel. And what an indictment it is. It's not hard to see ourselves at the American church in this picture of Israel. Rich, comfortable, proud, entitled, but mostly unconcerned that there are millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today who are in danger every day simply because they follow Jesus. Many of them persecuted severely. We are mostly unconcerned with the reality that there are some three billion people alive today living among peoples and in places where they have no available witness to the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by a large, as the American church, we could care less. We are mostly untouched and uncaring about the physical sufferings of hundreds of millions of people around the world. And you see, we're not so far removed in 21st century America in the church from 8th century B.C. Israel. And God says, Israel, because you're my children, I'm going to judge you. I wonder what he says to America and to the church. This week, Lee Tiannan passed into the gates of glory. You probably have no idea who he is. You may have never heard that name. Lee Tiannan was one of the leaders of the house church in the house church movement in China for the last 50 years has been so influential and and significant in the spread, the, the, the enormous spread of the gospel in China. But he did it, has done it at a tremendous cost to himself, much, per, much persecution, countless beatings, ten years in prison, all kinds of tortures. He died this week, but over the years he said several things that I remember as so significant. This is one. Consumerism could be more of an effective killer of Christianity than communism. And I think we see it played out around us today. He also said this. He said, consumerism makes you think that you don't have to suffer to follow Jesus. It makes you think you can have lots of things in Christ as well. In reality, you just end up with lots of things and most of the time don't even realize that Christ has gone. At issue here, you see, is what is it that we love? Above all, do we love Christ or do we love something else? Ourself? Our stuff? The last sermon, it's actually in the middle, but the last one I want to mention, just very 
brief just as we close is chapter 5. It's the third sermon in the middle. And it's there that we, that we see God's heart. Because we might wonder with all this talk about judgment and how severe judgment is, God sounds kind of harsh. God sound, perhaps to some sounds mean and cruel and uncaring, but what we see in Amos chapter 5 here in these first words is we realize that no, that's not God's heart at all. What He says is, hear this word that I take up with over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Lamentation is the cry of mourning. When you lose a loved one and your heart is breaking and the tears fall, and God is saying, Israel, I weep and I cry over you. He does not want to bring judgment upon them. And that's the whole purpose for Amos being there preaching. And he makes it clear in, as we go on, if you read this sermon three times, you'll see, you'll hear this phrase where God says, seek me and live. It's an invitation. Israel deserves what they're about to get, but God says it doesn't have to be that way. Listen to me. Seek me. Come to me and live. His invitation to them is the invitation He gives to us as well. We as a nation, we as the church, not just this church, the church, we as individuals, we all have much for which we deserve God's judgment. We've done an awful lot. But He calls us to the choice to which He called Israel. Seek Me and live. Seek Me and live. Let's pray. Father, that is Your heart. We must make no mistake Scripture is plain. You will judge sin. You will judge sin among those who do not know Christ. You will also judge sin in your church. For you are a holy and righteous God, but you're also a God of mercy and compassion. That's why you sent Jesus. So that whoever will believe in Him and trust in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You call for us to seek You. Lord, I pray that there is not one of us who will leave and not seek Jesus. Not seek You with all of our heart and all of our soul, mind and strength. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for this invitation to follow You and live for all it's worth. In Jesus' name.